All right, everybody, welcome. And it is two minutes after starting time. I don't like that, but my fault. I came in uh, came in late. But I have a, a watch with which to tell time now. Those of you that were in my uh, Sunday school class a couple of weeks ago, in the middle of teaching, uh, actually toward the end of teaching, I just had a feel, you know, kind of have a feel when you're almost to be done. I glanced at my watch, and it said I still had 20 minutes left. But that just didn't seem right. So I said to the group, how much time do I have? They said five. So I said my watch stopped. Stopped at 11.40. And it was really five before noon. So it was a good thing I asked. And then Wednesday, last Wednesday I come in, and on my desk is a new watch. <laughs> Somebody wants well, to that time. Yeah, nobody wants the pastor not to know what time it is. Okay? That's the thing. It's maybe not as thoughtful as you thought it was. Right? <laughs> But I've got this new watch. So I just say, hey, my watch is on the blink, and, and voila, a new watch shows up. So I want to let you guys know my car's on the blink. As well, we'll see what shows up, all right? That's what it is. We're on page three in the second tab. For those of you that have notebooks, second tab. And it's the second tab because we're in the second section of the three sections of this class, How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible. The first was an overview of the Bible. Now we're looking at how to understand the Bible, how to interpret it. And then when we're done with that, we'll end the class with the third section, which is how to apply the Bible. So last week, we began looking at understanding the Bible, and we saw that the goal of the reading and study process is to understand the author's intended meaning. It's to understand the author's intended meaning. And whenever you have uh, an old document, like the Bible, then understanding the author's intended meaning means you're going to have to put some conscious effort into trying to have a handle on what it was the one who wrote it intended to convey. And I used the analogy last week of the uh, Constitution. It's just a couple hundred years old. And the Bible's last book was written a couple thousand years old, but even with the Constitution, that's a heady task. And we have people that are on the Supreme Court whose job it is ostensibly to be that they are trying to find out what the framers intended uh, when they wrote. But I told you there are different schools of thought on that. Some see the Constitution as a living and breathing document whose meaning changes uh, over time. And that's what then gives rise to kind of uh, funky conclusions, such as 1973 and Roe v. Wade, uh, the uh, decision that uh, legalized abortion on demand in all 50 states and, uh, and invalidated the laws of 50 states on that issue with a stroke of a pen. But how did that happen? How, how did the Supreme Court decide that there's a constitutional right to abortion. Well, that's based on an approach toward interpretation. Uh, and the meaning has, has changed because it would be very difficult for you to find that meaning in the Constitution itself. In fact, it's so difficult that here's how they arrived at it. In 1965, there was a decision, lesser known, but Griswold v. Connecticut... And in Griswold v. Connecticut uh, was established something called the right to privacy. Now, if you read your Constitution, you'll find a number of rights enumerated 
there. And you have the you know the right to assemble, and you have the the right to to free speech and free press, and, and the right to uh, own and bear arms as well. In the Second Amendment, you've got a number of explicit kinds of rights. But you won't you won't even find the word privacy in the Constitution. Actually, now it doesn't mean there isn't any uh, privacy, but that but that that word and certainly the phrase right to privacy isn't there. Now, does the Constitution contain any uh, privacy provision? Sure. You know, the Fourth Amendment against unlawful searches and seizures means that you're to be secure in your uh, possessions and your effects and in your persons. And so you have that at least element of privacy. But in 1965, there was this uh, uh, right to privacy that is absolute. And it was based on the 1965 decision that the 1973 decision was based on the so-called right to privacy in the Griswold versus Connecticut decision. And in the 73 decision, Roe v. Wade, Harry Blackman, who wrote that decision, Harry Blackman, Harry Blackman appointed by Richard Nixon, but anyway, appointed by a Republican, these, uh, these presidents, in fact, uh, supposedly uh, Dwight Eisenhower said that the worst mistake he ever made was, worst two mistakes, were sitting on the Supreme Court. <laughs> two guys that he, he appointed, one of them being Earl Warren. And, uh, and the, the, Harry Blackman, an appointee of Nixon, wrote the decision Roe v. Wade. And in it, um, uh, he relies on the Griswold v. Connecticut right to privacy. And if you were to go back and look at that decision, that 65 decision, where there's an explanation given of where the right to privacy came from. Here's where, here's where it came from. I'm quoting now from the decision. The right to privacy comes from penumbras formed by emanations from the First Amendment. Let me repeat that in case it's not clear. The right to privacy comes from penumbras formed by emanations from the First Amendment. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, it means you're making it up, <laughs> number one. You can't find it, so you, so you come up with that. And then you break that down. I mean, I had to, when I first read that, I had to go look up what is a penumbra. Turns out a penumbra is often used in, in uh, astronomy, uh, and it, it means kind of an eclipse, a shadow. So penumbras, shadows, formed by emanations, something emanating from, derived from. So shadows derived from the First Amendment. <coughs> penumbras formed by emanations from the First Amendment. So that's and that's the law of the land. It's been the law of the land for all of these years now. And that's a matter, then, of interpretation. Clarence Thomas, who currently sits on the Supreme Court, who opposes the Roe v. Wade decision, and, in fact, uh, voted in 1992 when there was a case that came before the Supreme Court that could have overturned it. He voted to overturn it. Antonin Scalia voted to overturn it, who died just a few weeks ago. That decision in 1992 was five to four to keep it intact. Five to four to keep it intact. 
But Clarence Thomas, if you were to go into his office, I'm told, I've never been in his office, but he has a plaque on his desk that says, please do not emanate on my penumbras. (laughs) (laughs) And he's making fun of that craziness, okay? So the the author's intended meaning, I mean, if you're, you know, if if you have, uh, you know, James Madison, you know, principal architect of the, the Constitution, if you have him, there and you say, did you intend anything close to this? What do you think he would say? And so ascertaining the author's intended meaning is supposed to be the goal, but if you take a different approach to interpretation, then you can have all kinds of esoteric methods to come up with so-called meaning. So how should we go about this? Well, God chose to use human elements in the development of Scripture. That was God's choice to use human beings, to use their personalities, to use human language and grammar and so on. And so interpretation of the Bible is that of normal human communication. The Bible is a human book in that sense. Now, it's a divine book. We say that on page one, very first thing. The Bible has both divine and human authors. So the Bible comes to us from God, but it comes to us from God through humans. And it was God who chose to do that, and he chose to use human elements to produce his revelation to us in scripture and so the question then is and we explored it a little bit last week whose meaning am i looking for when i say we want to arrive at the author's intended meaning is it the is it the human authors or is it god uh, the divine authors and those are one and the same phyllis pointed it out last week if you've got the one you've got the other if you've got the human author's meaning then you've got god's meaning and We should never separate those. And in fact, if you do separate those, then you get weird ways of interpreting the Bible. The Bible becomes like one big book of Revelation. You guys know what I mean by that? You know, the book of Revelation, the last book of your Bible. You read through that, and that's a particular type of literature called apocalyptic literature, which has a lot of symbolism in it. Well, if you you don't do what we're talking about in, in these these lessons and use rules of normal human communication, normal human interpretation, then you'll uh, resort to things like allegory, allegorizing what you read. Everything you read represents something else. One big book of Revelation. Everything's a symbol for something else. And I've heard preaching like this. You guys have probably heard preaching like this. You know, so you can read from a passage, and here's what that represents. For example, the Jordan River in the Old Testament. I've heard, I've heard messages on crossing the Jordan into the Promised Land, and the Jordan River represents the victorious Christian life. Now, you got nothing, zero, in the book of Joshua to indicate this is the victorious Christian life. But it's some good preaching if you could find a passage to, to support it. So everything represents you know, something else. I've heard messages on uh, the story of the, the beggar Lazarus and the rich man. And you remember that uh, Lazarus begged for the crumbs that came from the rich man's table. And this preacher had the legs of the table representing different stuff. And the crumbs representing different things. So... If you don't use normal human rules of interpretation, 
then you will wind up with all kinds of esoteric, funky ways to arrive at supposedly God's spiritualized meaning. So understand that this, context determines meaning. Context determines meaning. I've uh, told this to my girls a bunch of times over the years, that phrase. Context determines meaning. Now, why would I be telling that to my girls? Here's why. Because anybody who's a parent or been a parent knows that there are going to be times where your kids are going to come and tell you what happened. And whenever they tell you what happened, their version will always be something like, all I did was, or all I said was, they got in trouble at school or something. All I did, all I said, and it may be. My girls were not given to out-and-out lies. It may be that what they said is technically true, but not giving the full context. Context determines meaning. That teacher did not get ticked off at you just for saying what you just told me. There's a larger context here, right? Context determines meaning. And that's true in any story. That's true in any circumstance. That's true in any communication. And we saw uh, back on page one last week that there are three contexts. There's the historical context, the literary context, and the grammatical context. And we need to place each passage of the Bible in all three of those, historical and literary and grammatical, and we get a principle of interpretation from each one of those. From deriving the historical context, we get the principle that's on page three. Near the top of page three there, you see in the box, principle number one, a text cannot mean what it never meant. So whatever it meant then, having put together the history, having put together the historical context, what it meant then is what it means now. But then there's the second area of context, and that is literary context on page three. In addition to the historical setting, interpretation is influenced by literary factors. Different literary types are to be interpreted differently. For example, an apple a day keeps the doctor away is a proverb. A proverb is not a blanket guarantee, but rather a general truth. The Bible uses various literary types and devices that must be taken into account for proper interpretation. So we saw that last week. I mentioned Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go when he is old. He will not depart from it. If you take that as a legal guarantee, then that means if you do it right, they turn out right. But a proverb is not intended to be a legal guarantee. It's a general truth. Generally, that's true. So if a, if a righteous set of parents has a rebellious child, does that mean that Proverbs is wrong? No, because Proverbs never intended to be a legal guarantee, but rather the nature of a proverb is that it's proverbial. It's a general It's a general truth. And in fact, I pointed out Ezekiel 18 says, there are times when a righteous man will have a violent son, a violent man will have a, a righteous son. So that's one example. It's not a blanket guarantee. That means then, A, interpret every biblical text in light of its literary form. The Bible contains various forms of literature. Poetry. We have a, a book of poetry in your Bible, the, the book of Psalms. And one of the features of Old Testament poetry, Hebrew poetry, is something called parallelism. Parallelism. 
So you'll often read in the Psalms, you'll read one line and then another line that's parallel to it in some way. The second line may be restating in different words the first line. Or the second line is often contrasting what was said in the first line. But that's the way, so Hebrew poetry was not the way ours is. If you're told, hey, come up with a poem, you'll try to come up with words that rhyme, the last words that rhyme for every, every line. Hebrew poetry didn't really care about rhyming, but it cared about parallelism. So that's a, a, a literary feature of that form of poetry that in order to interpret it properly then, you want to, you'd want to know about. So it's got various forms of literature. One of those is, is poetry. There's narrative. I'll come back to that in a minute. Proverbs. We talked about that last week and again today. Parables. Parables. Unlike the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, I take that as a, a parable, by the way. Uh, people get really mad when you say that because remember where the rich man was. He was in hell. And so often that's used as a proof text with regard to the existence of hell. Well, there's plenty of other proof texts with regard to the existence of hell. So to see that as a parable, it's got all the features of a parable, doesn't mean I'm denying the existence of hell. I don't. I deny no such thing. There, there is a hell. The Bible teaches that. Uh, but that's not what that parable's about. That's not what the parable's about. And parables, one of the features of parables is that they are stories that teach one overarching truth. And the details of the story just contribute to that one overarching truth. And you're not supposed to be focused in on these details. You're supposed to get that one overarching truth. So the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man, you know, ate sumptuously. He lived large. And he died and he wound up in, in hell. So what's the, you know, what's the overarching truth of that? You know, that what you have on this earth doesn't determine what your life is going to be like in the next. Because Lazarus, where did he wind up? He wound up in heaven. So that's your overarching truth. That's the point that, that Jesus is, is making. And that's one of the features of a, of a parable. And then you've got letters. Uh, those we're most familiar with in the New Testament, the epistles, the letters of Paul and, and others. And those are the most straightforward for us because they are instruction and uh, there's not as much interpretation that has to take place with those, but certainly some. We're going to use, see an example of that, uh, maybe even today, if we get to it, and others. So each of these is to be interpreted accordingly. Now, I said I would get back to narrative. For example, narrative portions of Scripture describe the actions of others, while epistolary books often prescribe actions for others. Epistolary books, that is the letters. So Romans and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and Philippians and Colossians and Galatians, these letters in your New Testament, those often prescribe actions for others while narratives describe the actions of others. Now, that's important to get. One, because two-thirds of your Bible is narrative. And if you think that everything in the narratives is a prescription for stuff for you to do, well, you've got some traveling to do. I mean, you know, when when the Bible says that, you know, in Acts 1, we have it here, the, the fact that the disciples went to Jerusalem, there's your marching orders. Get to Jerusalem, okay? 
Well, it's not telling you to go to Jerusalem. It's telling you they went to Jerusalem. It's describing what they did, not prescribing what you're supposed to do. Now, here's why I say that's important. Two-thirds of your Bible is a narrative. If you think all of uh, that is then prescriptions for stuff you're supposed to do, then good luck figuring figuring all that out. Um, And people who get it wrong end up doing things erroneously today. This is one of the fatal mistakes of our Pentecostal friends, of which I used to be one when I grew up. And that is a failure to differentiate between narrative that describes and other literature that prescribes. All the descriptions of what other people did aren't prescriptions for what you're supposed to do. Uh, So you get, I'll get to you, hang on to that question. So you... uh, you see described in the book of Acts, 28 chapters of the book of Acts, is, is narrative. It's describing, and not all of what's being described there is stuff that you're supposed to do or even can do. Uh, so Peter tells a teenage girl to raise from the dead. And, and the book of Acts describes that happening. So if you believe that every description of what everybody else did is a prescription for you, start start raising people from the dead. Um, you know, likewise they they go to Jerusalem, healings. You know, they they walk up in Acts chapter three to a man who is uh, uh, lame from birth, and they say, "Get up and walk," and he gets up and walks. What's well, it describing? Now, what's it? De- who's it describing? It's describing the acts of who? What's the book called? The Acts of the, the Apostles, right? So I said there are certain things that are described there that you can't do because you can't do everything an apostle does because you're not an apostle. I'm not an apostle. But it's describing accurately what they did as they established the, the church. So if you take everything that's described as prescribed, then you've got a lot of work to do. Yes? So how should you go about studying if you've not... I mean, if you're going in sequential order as the Bible's laid out, then you might get stuck in a certain area and not uh, arrive to a certain um, book um, to help you change because you're stuck in Deuteronomy. Well, it's a great question. Yeah, you're in in some narrative section. Deuteronomy, what was happening with the Israelites, you know? Or numbers. Or numbers (laughs) in the the wilderness. Is that a confession? You're still stuck in numbers? (laughs) But yeah, yeah, exactly. So here I say that, look, not everything that's described of others is prescribed for you. So then how does that stuff help me if it's not prescribing for me? And how can the Bible say, as it does in the New Testament, all Scripture is useful? Well, then how is it useful if if it's not prescribing for me? So it doesn't mean narrative is not useful. If, if the Bible is accurate in making that statement, all Scripture is useful, then it is profitable, it is useful for us. But how we use it, how we make use of it, is different. So what do we do with narrative? What, you, what narrative is designed for us to do is to see common human experience. Common human experience. 
You guys remember when we were in the first section, I repeated several times over that time that you could you could summarize what the Bible is about in one line. People, anybody remember? People in situations. All right, all right thanks. People in situations before God. Thank you, Lisa. All right. <laughs> she felt so bad for me. Here. She started mouthing something. It wasn't the right answer, but still, I appreciate it. <laughs> People in situations before God. People in situations in the presence of God. And the situations are varied. The situations are described in the narratives. Those narrations are describing sinful, ornery, confused, dumb people. Does that sound familiar? That would be, say, us. It's describing people in situations before God. And two of those three elements have not changed. People and God. So there are then features of those stories that are common to human experience before God. And if you're going through narrative, then that's what you want to find out. You want to find out, how is that like me? How are they like me? How is that situation like what I do? You know, grumbling in the wilderness. Numbers. You know, telling God you don't like the menu. Okay? I mean, that's what's that. Okay, so that's that's common human experience. So when that kind of stuff is taught and preached, then, those are the kind of points you want to get out of it. Is, you know, I was going through Genesis, and we're going to pick up Genesis in April again. But as I'm going through Genesis, I'm going through, I'm going through this narrative. We're going to pick up with Noah and the narrative of Noah. Well, you know, we get to Noah. Noah, go build an ark. Again, is that prescribed for you? Maybe Ken Ham's building one down in uh, down in Kentucky. Okay, it's going to open in July, I think. Right, the Ark Encounter, uh, and they're making a a biblical sized version of the of the ark there. I'm not going this year. It's going to be too crowded there. But that's going to be a cool thing. But, you know, go build a boat and take 120 years to do it, which is another thing you can't do, by the way. <laughs> uh, so go build a boat. Now, we're going to pick up on that. That's going to be the narrative of all this stuff that happened to Noah. And as you preach that, what are we supposed to get out of that? And what I'm looking for and what I want to present is the elements of common human experience that are there. In the life of Noah, as he interacts with God, in his particular circumstance, and then try to parallel those with our own kinds of circumstances. Now, we'll see some more of that when we get to the third section of our course in a couple weeks on applying the Bible. It's one of the ways you apply the Bible, is you you bridge the gap between those people and their situations to us and our situations. So, Eula, back to your question. It is profitable. But as you read the story, you need to be asking yourself, what am I learning about people and what am I learning about God in this story? Their story is different than my story. Their situation is different than my situation, but they're not different than me. We're the same. We're sinful, ornery, dumb, all of that. And God's the same as as well. So, uh, when, you, when you look at the narrative, it's telling the story of common human experience, even if the particulars of the story 
are not our particulars. So interpret every biblical text in the light of its various forms of literature. And narrative is one example of that that describes rather than prescribes, but it's still profitable. It's still useful if used the way that I mentioned. And then B, interpret every biblical text in light of its literary device. Normal human communication often employs devices such as figures of speech. For example, one might say, my mouth is on fire, if he's just tasted something very hot. But of course, we don't literally mean there's flames coming out of, of the mouth. It's a figure of speech. Genesis 2, 10, 7, John 10, 7, excuse me. Jesus said, I am the gate. Obviously, Jesus was using a literary device to make his point. Just as one's mouth is not actually in flames, Jesus is not actually a gate, and normal interpretation takes all of that into, into account. Another example, lots of examples of figures of speech, but hyperbole. You know, in, intentional, exaggerated speech. And the Bible has hyperbole. And if, and if you don't... If you don't allow those figures of speech to stand as intended, then Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, you must hate your father and your mother. You must hate your father and your mother. That's hyperbolic speech. To say, as he goes through all of these, you know, these contrasts, uh, that, that in comparison to me, your love for me would look like hate for, for anyone else because I'm number one. You're either for me or you are against me. But this is the same God who said, honor your father and your mother. So there's hyperbole. There's, um, there's a metaphor and so on. So what principle do you get out of that? Bottom of page three. First principle is a text cannot mean what it never meant. The second one is all texts are not alike. So you've got three different kinds of contexts. You've got the historical context. You've got the literary context. You get a principle of interpretation out of each of these. Out of the historical context, it's a text cannot mean what it never meant. Out of the literary context, it's all texts are not alike. But then top of page four, you've got this third area of context, and that is grammatical context. And we'll get a principle out of that also. The difference between the original language of a biblical book and the language of readers today creates additional obstacles to interpretation that have to be bridged. But they can be overcome by application of the following rules. Interpret every biblical text in light of its original language. As mentioned last time, the Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek and a small portion in Aramaic. Since most do not know those languages, it's necessary to obtain a good translation of the Bible that converts the original languages into, into one's own, into English. So I mentioned last week we use the NIV here, New International Version. There are other good good uh, translations, uh, but the New International Version is in updated language. Uh, it was most recently updated in 2011, so just a few years ago, so that uh, it is uh, using, a, it's called this, a dynamic equivalent in English of what the Hebrew or Greek is saying, so that... Uh, so that uh, it's easier to understand. But one factor to bear in mind when interpreting the language of Scripture is that all languages are univocal. And that word univocal you see in quotes there means one voice. 
So vocal, voice, vocalizing. Uni means one. So if you're riding a unicycle, how many wheels do you have? <laughs> you got one. So univocal means one voice. That is, a word can only mean one thing in a given context. A word only means one thing in a given context. So when, when, when you're asked, how do I know what a word means? Where would you go? Well, you would go, we would go to a dictionary. But a lexicographer, that's somebody who writes a dictionary. A lexicon. A dictionary. A lexicographer. If you're a lexicographer, you need to get a life. Okay? But anyway, you, you write a dictionary. And a lexicographer does not assign meaning. Meaning. The dictionary does not determine meaning. The lexicographer, the one who writes the dictionary, doesn't determine the meaning. They record meaning. That is, they record the way a word is used in a given language at a given time. Isn't that true? Isn't that why, you know, the new American collegiate heritage, whatever, you know, big thick dictionary you used to have before online dictionaries? And then there would be another edition. Why do, you, why do we keep having editions of them? Because, right. And they're simply recording the way it's used. So when we go to the dictionary, we're not really finding out what a word means. We're finding out the way a word is used in a given language at a given time. And that's why when you go and you look up a word, it most often will not have only one entry. It'll have two or three or five. So how do you know, then, how this word is being used in what you're reading or hearing? Well, remember what I said and what I tell my girls. Context determines meaning. And then that's why we say it here. A word can only mean one thing in a given context. And if this were not the case, only one word would be required to construct an entire language. Because that word could mean anything in any given context. And, of course, it's impossible. And so, you know, words are used in particular ways, in particular cultures, at particular times, and in various contexts. So, interpret, as we interpret the Bible, we're going to practice this. I don't know if we'll get to it today, but certainly next week we'll start practicing. Looking at a passage and trying to take the two verses that we're going to look at in 1 Corinthians 14 and place the words in that passage in the context. And we're going to see that some of those words can actually mean something else in a different context. But since context determines meaning, we're going to see they mean this in this particular context. Okay? And then B, interpret every biblical text in light of its larger logical units. Now, this is the grammatical context we're looking at. So larger logical units means larger logical grammatical units. Now, what's the smallest grammatical unit? A word. And then what's the next? It's a sentence. And then what are sentences contained in? Paragraphs. You know, and then paragraphs are contained in, in books, not, not chapters, because there were no chapters. 
uh, when the Bible was originally written, but in but in books. So you got word, you got sentence, you got paragraph, you got book. But then, what's the largest context then of all for that particular book? It's the overall context of the Bible itself, where that book fits into the biblical story. And so we say here, all communication is propositional. That is, all communications is constructed in sentences, but sentences are one part of a larger logical chain. There are words, phrases, sentences, paragraphs, chapters, maybe, if they're if they're constructed properly, and then books. So the context of a given word, phrase, sentence, paragraph, and so on is dependent on those larger logical units of which it's a part. And again, we're going to look at two verses in 1 Corinthians 14 <coughs> and show how those fit into all of those. How words fit into the sentences, sentences fit into the paragraphs, paragraphs into the overall book, the book into the overall overall Bible. So you get a principle out of that. Not only can a text not mean what it never meant, and all texts are not alike, but thirdly, a text has only one meaning. Now, a text can have a bunch of applications, but it has only one meaning. So we're not trying to... You don't want to go to a Bible study that does this. Get ten people, make a circle, read a passage, and then I say, Sharon, what does that mean to you? John, what does that mean to you? Paul, what does that mean to you? Now, not to be impolite, but the truth is I don't really care what it means to you. Right? I care what it means. Because it can't mean what it never meant. And it means only one thing. So we want to get to what it what it means. Now, you may well want to be in a group of 10, 12, 15, 20 people in the living room and discuss how that applies to me now, having heard what it means. By the way, those groups are called community groups. And they meet in homes. And you notice when we get together, we're not actually trying to figure out what a passage means because we've already been taught what something means. Now we're trying to apply it with these with these questions. All right, middle of page four. Note, because the Bible is composed of human elements, it's to be interpreted as normal human communication. Thus, the principles of interpretation listed above are applicable to any human communication, not just the Bible. Those three things... A text can't mean what it never meant. All texts are not alike. And uh, a text has only one meaning. That applies to the newspaper, magazine. You listening to me right now. But as I said last week, since we live at the same time and in the same place, that what I'm communicating to you is contemporary, same time, and same place. It's local. That being the case, you don't have to think about those three things. But you're actually doing all those three things as you listen to me and as you read stuff. But with the Bible, you have to consciously do what you unconsciously do all the time with things you hear during the day. However, middle of that paragraph, the Bible does differ from other human communication in that, in addition to the human authors, the Bible has one ultimate author, that is God. And since there is ultimately a single author of the Bible, it has internal unity. Now, this is a final principle that we want you to give interpretation of the Bible that comes from the fact that God's the ultimate author, that God oversaw what he wanted written. That means that guarantees that the Bible has internal unity because it's God's story, it's God's book, it's God's revelation. 
If that were not the case, and you have 66 books by 40 different guys, well, now we've got all kinds of different things that may or may not agree with each other. In fact, forget the may or may not, they won't. You get five people in a room today to try to agree on something, let alone 40 different authors over a 1,600-year period. Impossible unless you've got one ultimate author, and that's God. But the Bible, because of that single ultimate authorship, has internal unity. This means the Bible will never contradict itself. The following then interpretive rules flow from the fact that the Bible has ultimately one author. Interpret difficult passages in light of those that are clear. If the Bible clearly teaches a doctrine in one passage, another passage cannot contradict it. If you understand the meaning of a clear passage, it helps you interpret a difficult passage because you already know what it cannot mean. It cannot mean something opposite something that is that is taught clearly in the Bible. So let me give you an example. When I was growing up you know, in my Pentecostal church, we believed that you could lose your salvation, that you could be saved, born again, a Christian, a child of God at one point, and sometime later you could lose that. Well, what does the Bible teach about that? And when I, was a, when I was a kid, I was given a, a handful of passages that purported to teach that you could lose your salvation. And one of them, believe it or not, was the story of Judas Iscariot. I was told when I was a kid, Judas lost his salvation. Why? Because Judas was one of the twelve. Now, you remember what Jesus called Judas. I've chosen you 12, and one of you is a, a devil, he says. When uh, Judas uh, hanged himself, it is said that he went to his own place. Uh, Judas was called a son of perdition, a phrase used of Satan. So getting this guy saved is pretty hard, okay? Judas was never saved. But... I was told Judas was a guy who was saved because he palled around with the apostles and he clearly lost it. So that was that was one. Uh, in Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4, the Bible says that uh, uh, Paul says to the Galatians who, some of whom were tempted to follow uh, teaching that said you have to add things to the gospel. And he says, if you do that, if you follow that teaching, quote, you have fallen from grace. If you do that, you have fallen from grace. So that phrase was taken to mean these are people who were saved who have fallen out of salvation. Uh, so there were passages like that that were a handful of passages shown to me that said, see, you can lose your salvation. And then, you know, I'm all confused, man. I was just such a wreck. I go to this Baptist school. I'm a Pentecostal, and I'm going to a Baptist high school. And then these guys are telling me, you can't lose your salvation. And, you know, I don't know what to think. I am a schizophrenic wreck. I'm a Baptocostal is what I was going through high school. 
And it was so confusing for me, I determined that I just can't get my mind around it. I'm just going to have to wait until I get out of high school. When I get older, more mature, I'm going to figure this thing out. And I started buying books. And in God's good providence, when I was 19, I started buying books after I graduated. And in God's good providence, the very first book I purchased with my own money, and I take that back, the very first books I ever purchased were Charlie Brown Peanuts books with my own money. I like those. But a serious book that I purchased with my own money was called Answering the Tough Ones. Answering the Tough Ones. And this was an apologetics book. This was a defend the faith kind of book. And I was going to U of M Dearborn, and I'm trying to defend the faith, so I need all the help I can get. But there's a chapter in this, uh, in this book that says, can a saved person ever be lost? That deals with this issue of eternal security. And there's a line in that chapter in that book that said this. Eternal life must be eternal in order for it to really be eternal life. That's the line. How stupid is that? And I remember reading that and going, why didn't I think of that? Eternal life must be eternal if it's really to be eternal life. And there's this verse, John chapter 5 and verse 24, John 5, 24. Jesus says, King James, verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word. Now, I want you to notice the tenses of the verbs because that's important here. He who hears my word, present, and believes on him who sent me, present, has eternal life. All present, right? And then says, Jesus says, and shall not, what is that? Future. Come into condemnation. In the future. And then he adds this. But is past. Present. From death into life. He who hears my word and believes on him who sent me. Has eternal life. And shall not come into condemnation. But has passed. From death into life. And what does he have? Present tense? Eternal life. And how long is eternal? So if it only lasts two weeks, guess what you didn't have? You had temporary life. You had probationary life. You had conditional life. But you didn't have eternal life. Well, that one line in that chapter, in that book, solved that issue for me. And I've been vexed for all those years. By the way, is that God's good providence that I just picked up that book with that one dumb line in it that I should have known a long time ago? But, you know, God uses all kinds of things to just help the light go on. And the light went on for me. Well, if John 5.24 that we just went through teaches what we, I think, all agreed it teaches, that if you believe in the present, you will not be condemned in the future. But rather, in the present, you have as a present possession eternal life. Then whatever else these verses that I was told about as a kid mean, they can't mean that you had eternal life and you no longer have it. 
And then that helped me understand something that my Pentecostal church believed but had never articulated it this way to me. That in my Pentecostal church, they believed in eternal life, but eternal life was something you get only after you die. You see, if these two things are true, then you can never lose your salvation. The first is, if eternal life is a present possession. A present possession. Not something you get in the future, but something you have now. If eternal life is a present possession, and secondly, if eternal life is forever, if those two things are true, if it's something you have now and it lasts forever, if those two things are true, then losing your salvation is an impossibility, right? But it took that for me to figure that out. Now, have I ever told you guys my story about asking that sort of question to a Roman Catholic apologist? Almost 20 years ago, 1997, I went to New York for a week of teaching on Roman Catholicism because I was doing some studying and some teaching at our church then before this church on Roman Catholicism. And so I went there to hear James White, uh, if you know who that is, but James White has a book in our resource center called The Roman Catholic Controversy. He's written books on the King James Version Controversy and uh, a real theologian. They had some other people there, and it was a great week. But at the end of the week, James White was uh, debating a well-known, at least in apologetic circles, Roman Catholic apologist, uh, Robert Sungenis. And they're having this debate at a ballroom at a hotel at the end of the week, and I'm all geeked about this, this debate. But And the debate is about, uh, can a justified person uh, ever go to hell? Or to put it another way, can you ever lose your salvation? It's about eternal security. And, of course, Roman Catholicism believes you can lose your salvation because it's a works-oriented uh, religion. Uh, so I, when we go into the ballroom, I look at where the microphones are placed because at the end they're going to have a Q&A. And I get a seat close to one of the microphones so that I can jump up to ask a question. And at the end of the debate, people start to get up, and I jump up. I'm about the fifth in line, but I did get a chance to ask a question. And I said, my question is for Robertson Genis. And I said, uh, I grew up believing that a child of God could be disinherited. That's the way he said it. A child of God can be disinherited. So I said, I grew up believing that until I read passages like John 5, 24. And then I quoted, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word believes on him who sent me as eternal life shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. And I realized in order to believe that a child of God can be disinherited, you have to deny one of two things. You either have to deny that eternal life is a present possession, or you have to deny that eternal life lasts forever. And my question is, which of those do you deny? And he says, I'll say that again. (laughs) And so I, I repeated it. And he says, well, eternal life does last forever, and eternal life is a present possession. (coughs) But then he says this. But do you have a driver's license? This is the illustration he uses. Yeah. It's got a date on it, an expiration date. 
And of course, the, the answer to that is driver's licenses are not what? They're not eternal. That's why they have an expiration date. That's why they're, con- they're conditional on you meeting the requirements of keeping a driver's license. They can be taken from you if you violate the terms. But that's because driver's licenses aren't eternal, and you just said eternal life is. So he just he said, well, then there would be no reason. His other reason was there would be no reason for judgment. So the other argument that is made is that there's only really only one kind of judgment. Judgment for whether or not you're going to heaven or hell. But of course the Bible teaches there's two judgments, right? There's a judgment for the lost and there's a judgment for the saved. And the judgment for the saved is not a judgment as to whether or not you're going to heaven or hell, but with regard to rewards. So, messed up on a bunch of counts. But I tell you all of that to say that's an example, but a very I think you could see a very important example of how you can be shown passages that purport to say you can lose your salvation, but because the Bible has unity, one clear passage cannot contradict a more obscure passage and vice, and vice versa. And so when you look at a more difficult passage, you already know what it cannot mean based on not just John 5.24, but John 3.16, upon uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. <laughs> Those he predestined, so do the tenses again. Those he predestined, predestination's like way past tense. <laughs> that would be like eternity past. Those he predestined, he also called. Now that's past tense, but that's past tense in time. Not eternity past, but historical past. Those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified. That's again historical past. And those he justified, he also, anybody remember? Glorified. Now, glorified is past tense. But the weird thing about it is, glorification hasn't happened yet. Those he predestined, he called, and he justified, and he glorified, past tense, but it hasn't happened yet. So how can glorified be in there? Since none of you are glorified. And I'm not glorified because none of us would look this way <laughs> if we had our glorified bodies, all right? So it's past tense. Now, how is it past tense? Here's how. Because in the mind of God who predestined, predetermined that you would be called and that you would be justified, it's as good as done that you will be glorified. And notice the chain. Predestined, called, justified, glorified. That chain is unbroken. Those that are predestined, those people he called. And those people he called, he justified. And the people he justifies, he glorified. It's an unbroken chain. Nobody that's predestined, nobody that's called, nobody that's justified will not be glorified. Every last one of them will be. All right. I've gone to preaching. All right. But you could just go passage after passage to show God finishes what he starts. Uh, Faithful is the one who called you, who will bring it to completion. 1 Thessalonians 5.24, 1 Thessalonians 5.24, Philippians 1.6, and on it goes. So interpret difficult passages in light of those that are clear. And then, number two, bottom of page four, 
The fact that God is the author, ultimate author of the Bible means a second thing. Interpret each biblical book in light of its overall biblical context. We've already noted that each passage has to be interpreted in light of larger logical units since the whole Bible has but one author. The largest logical unit is the entire Bible. Overall biblical context refers to both content and time. That is, an individual book of the Bible fits into the overall biblical teaching and was written at a specific time within God's progressive unfolding of his revelation. So that's a mouthful, but what we're saying is that as you study a passage in a particular book, that passage and that book fit into the overall revelation that God has given. It's all come to us from this one author, God. And the context of that book is the content teaching of the Bible. Whatever it's teaching is going to be in light of what's already been taught. So that's part of the context. And then also the time in which it fits versus what's already been already been laid out now in the passage we're going to consider next week in 1 Corinthians 14 that issue is going to become a big one how what's taught in 1 Corinthians 14 fits into the overall teaching of the Bible, teaching that happened before 1 Corinthians was written that has bearing on the interpretation of 1 Corinthians so knowing the time of 1 Corinthians and knowing how it fits into other teaching of the Bible before it was ever written is going to help us interpret what 1 Corinthians 14 means. So with all of that, principle number four is this. The Bible communicates a unified message. I'll give you one last example in the one minute I have left. You know, I gave you the eternal security thing. Here's another one from Romans chapter 4 and James chapter 2. Romans chapter 4 and James chapter 2. Romans chapter 4 teaches, I was going to look at it, maybe next week at the beginning we will. But I don't have time now. But Romans chapter 4 teaches that uh, a person is justified by believing apart from works. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. That we are justified by believing, by faith, apart from works. Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness, credited to him as righteousness. All right, that's Romans 4. You believe you're justified apart from what you do. And then you come to James chapter 2. And James says faith, believing, without works, is what? Is dead. Well, what do I do with that? Well, if I got Romans chapter 4 right, then James can't mean that justification comes by faith and works. Because Paul, who wrote Romans, is very clear that justification comes apart from works. In fact, that's the phrase he uses, apart from works. So how do you put James four or Romans 4 and James 2 together? We will answer that next week. All right? So see you then, Lord willing.